started, and we have an announcement to begin. Yes, yeah. So let me start my little watch here. Um, for full disclosure, I'm on a different time time zone, and so my alarm went off way too early this morning. So if I sound froggy, it's because I hit snooze, went back to sleep, and just woke up about a half hour ago. So that's why I sound like this. Um, but my name is Jessica Patterson. I've actually met some of you, I think, um, in the booth already, but I work for an organization called Mats. We do Cars for Ministry. We're a nonprofit organization in Indianapolis. And if you're wondering what MATS stands for, I will tell you that briefly because that was my first question when I joined the organization. Uh, MATS means Missionary Automobile Transportation Solutions. We've been around since the late 70s. We use an acronym because we do um, mailings overseas, and we obviously can't have the word missionary in there, so that's where MATS comes from. But you'll have to swing by my booth. Um, Anyway, so we're here, and we're so excited to be here. Uh, We're actually sponsoring the talk today, and we are set up in the exhibit hall. Um, So we work exclusively with Christian organizations and their staff to provide reliable and affordable vehicles for ministry. Um, So what that looks like is you would contact us and just let us know, hey, we've only got about $10,000. We need to find a van. Maybe you're raising support or just generally speaking, you'd like to be a good steward of your money, um, and we can start a search for you. Uh, we actually have inventory that is held at a Christian car dealership that we work exclusively with. Um, if we can't find what you need in that inventory, uh, we can branch out to our um, wholesaler connections across the country. So it's basically an auction. Um, that's where all the main car dealers go actually to purchase. So if you have, let's say, $10,000, We would purchase a vehicle on your behalf from an auction, bring it back to Indiana. Our dealership's actually in Richmond, Indiana. It's about an hour east of Indianapolis. That's where my office is. And we would recondition the vehicle for you, and we can actually deliver it directly to you, or you could come pick it up from us, whichever works for you. Some people like to uh, have us deliver it to them because the sales tax is actually cheaper in their state. But anyway, um, the beauty of working with Matt's, let me check my time here. Uh, the beauty with working with Matt's is that our entire purpose is to help Christian organizations and their staff serve others well. And we want to be able to do that and pair with you and help you by helping you be a good steward of your money. So this doesn't just apply to you personally if you're a part of a Christian organization. Um, it would also apply to your family. So if you have a child that's getting a license or perhaps they're going off to college and they need a vehicle, we would love to work with you. Um, to get a vehicle for them. Uh, We also offer a ministry discount, which is between about $1,000 to $2,000 on a vehicle. Um, We've helped thousands of people across the country over the years. Again, I said we've been around since the late 70s, but um, before the advent of the Internet, um, purchasing on auctions was not possible. So we've really kind of grown in the last 10 years to become what we are today. We're still a small organization, family-owned, and family run, rather. So my role there is as director of development, and if you have a chance, um, at the very end of the talk, I'm going to have some cards and brochures set up on this back table. I've got to run and grab those, and I will drop those off towards the end. Uh, So before you take off, you can pick something up. Or you can swing by the booth. I've got little candy bars to kind of draw people in, so if you need a little snack, you know. Um, And we're also going to do um, a drawing for a gas gift card. So you can swing by the booth and do that, or I will have some forms in the back. Basically, you sign up for our newsletter, and then out of that um, bunch, I will draw one of the names, and I can let you know. And um, if I don't see you again at the conference, I can um, 
mail you the gas gift card. So I just want to point one thing out about that. If you do the drawing from this room, then the gas gift card is going to come from this pool of people. Um, if you do the drawing from the exhibit hall, which I'm geographically challenged, so where is that from here? Downstairs. Thank you. Um, if you do the drawing from there, it will be from the pool of everyone who attended the conference. So um, I've got about 30 seconds, probably not enough time to answer questions, but I hope you... Oh, yes. Go for it. I bought a car for you guys like six years ago. Perfect. That's wonderful, and I forgot to ask if anybody had purchased. So this is a good way to use the last 45 seconds. Yes, so maybe you could swing by and talk to that guy, and he'll help you out um, with that. So, no. um, so I'll be back at the very end, and I'll hang around in the back if you have questions, or you can swing by the exhibit hall downstairs. Okay, thank you so much. You all have a great day. Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, my name is Rick Phillips, and I am introducing our speaker. The reason for that is not that we need an introduction, but this seminar is one of four that are being... Uh, brought to the uh, assembly by this group called the Gospel Reformation Network. This is an organization without headquarters, uh, without staff. It's just a website. And uh, a bunch of BCA ministers who are concerned about uh, the way the gospel is being defined in much of our preaching. Particularly our concern is a de-emphasis, uh, whether deliberate, sometimes deliberate, sometimes not, on the doctrine of sanctification, on the call to holiness, on the transformational work of Christ, uh, which is part of the good news at this time. Now, I'm, one of the things we're handing out are our affirmations and denials. We have put a, a, doc, a document together trying to work through some of the issues about justification and sanctification. If you're at all plugged in, you know there's been a fair amount of debate uh, on this subject, and it's a working subject. Uh, what is the relationship of works to salvation? Uh, how do we think about justification and sanctification without compromising either one? And so uh, we put together a 12 uh, article, uh, Affirmations and Denials on Justification and Sanctification. We want to give you one of those. We're also doing these seminars. Now today, we've asked Dr. Phil Reichen to speak on Thomas Boston and the Fourfold State of Man. Phil, uh, you know, was for many years the senior minister at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Actually, before that, he was the associate minister. Uh, we were associates together at 10th Pres. And uh, uh, he is more recently the president of Wheaton College. Uh, Phil's uh, written a lot of books. Uh, people say to me, uh, what do you make of Phil not preaching? Well, he is a, I, I praise God for his service to the Lord, but as the co-series editor of our commentary series, I lament it. Uh, he will point out he is preaching as his books uh, are published. But when people say, uh, people, uh, people ask me, uh, why do you think Phil Reichen went to be president of Wheaton College? My answer is not an inside answer, it's just observation because Phil's a loyal son. Phil was raised in Wheaton, he went to Wheaton Grammar, he went to Wheaton College, and uh, I know his heart that when his alma mater said, come back and provide us leadership, he was not able to say no. But it's a joy to have him back in our General Assembly. Uh, we wanted him to speak, he did his dissertation at Oxford on Thomas Boston and the Fourfold State. And it occurred to us that that is a relevant topic and a relevant historical moment and the theological issues involved in the broader work of Thomas Boston and that particular work are worth recalling today. That has caused us to ask Bill uh, just a general desire to have him back in our midst teaching and that belief as well. Before I bring him up, does anybody have not have a copy of this affirmation to denial? I'll hand this out, I'll get out.
Well, good morning. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, you know, when you're talking in a topic of historical theology, you have no idea if anybody's going to come at all. So this is uh, very, very encouraging to see you here this morning. Uh, special thanks to Matt's for uh, sponsoring this seminar. And uh, hopefully in, in some way uh, they're able to make a kingdom connection to, to help you in ministry uh, some way through their uh, introduction this morning. Also special thanks to Covenant College under the exceptional leadership now of Derek Halverson. Uh, very excited about his leadership for Covenant College and, and glad for Covenant to uh, have uh, organized these seminars. And special thanks to the Gospel Reformation Network. Um, when, uh, when somebody asks you to speak on the subject of your doctoral work, I mean, they have you right where they want you. I mean, there's no way you're going to say no to that. You get so few chances to do that. So uh, I was reading in, um, picked up a, a little copy of um, Athanasius on the Incarnation, which is a, a text we frequently assign in theology at Wheaton College. And uh, one of the, the paperback edition has an introduction by C.S. Lewis. And he makes a great comment at the beginning of that introduction. He says, you really should, re for every new book you read, you should read one old book. Or at least you should read one old book for every three new books that you read. And part of the reason for that is that when you read from a different generation in the life of the church, what I, I would think of, this isn't the term he uses, but I think of this as practicing the communion of the saints, um, having a respect and deference to our brothers and sisters throughout time as well as throughout geography, um, that will tend to correct the errors of your own time. That's one of the reasons we should read some of the older, uh, older books. So we're going to do, this is an exercise um, in doing that. I understand there are discussions in the PCA uh, regarding sanctification. I'm a little out of the loop on that, although Rick Phillips has tried to educate me on some of the uh, some of the issues. But it's not surprising that there are discussions and maybe even disputes about the doctrine of sanctification because you see that recurring really through the life of the church from the New Testament on. And maybe especially in a church community where there's a strong emphasis on the gospel, um, you you often have then two strong responses to that. One is an accusation of antinomianism. Anytime you really preach the gospel in a Pauline, Luther, Calvin, Thomas Boston kind of way, some people are going to be suspicious of that, that somehow you're not really for holiness because there's such an emphasis on the freedom of God's grace. Uh, but you can also have in, in theologically orthodox communities, and maybe reformed communities are particularly prone to this, uh, a kind of legalism about the life of holiness. And both legalism and antinomianism are always presented in the name of Christ as being something that's in keeping with the gospel. Um, so then, then you really do have a dispute or something to talk about, something to go back to the scriptures about and to clarify. And I, I think Thomas Boston can really help us in this area as in a lot of areas. Um, it was, and Rick Phillips briefly commented on this, Thomas Boston, um, late 17th century, early 18th century, was part of a group of Scottish pastors, theologians called the Marrow Men, and um, if you really wanted to learn all about that, you should be next door, where Ligon Duncan, who's just an expert on Scottish church history and theology, is talking about the Merrow Men. But at least you can get the recording of that if, if you feel like you're missing out. Although if somebody slips out of the room right now, I won't be offended. Um, but there was a, a liberal influence in the Scottish church because of the Scottish Enlightenment 
that generated then an orthodox response that was moving in a legalistic direction. And Thomas Boston was really recovering an emphasis on the graciousness of God in the gospel and in sanctification, but for that reason was accused of being antinomian, of not being for holiness. Uh, and so here, here's a kind of example from our own Presbyterian tradition of um, somebody wrestling with these issues of, of gospel holiness. And what had happened to Thomas Boston was he had been, uh, he was um, in very poor circumstances, had just a few books in his personal library, and was visiting another pastor and saw this book on the shelf called The Marrow of Modern Divinity, and he borrowed the book, as pastors in that uh, time and place often did. They shared whatever resources they had. And The Mirror of Modern Divinity was essentially a theological dialogue, a little bit like reading like Plato or one of those kinds of dialogues, where somebody was raising theological objections and then answering them. But the, the theological answers were all coming from Luther, from early Puritan sources. A lot of them were just quotations out of other great theological works. And here's a, a young minister wrestling with issues of the gospel and of sanctification and drinking deeply from Reformation and post-Reformation sources, which are emphasizing the free offer of the gospel, the graciousness of God in sanctification, um, some of these very refreshing and soul-nourishing themes. And the more he began to preach and to write on these themes with other colleagues, the more they were accused of being antinomian, and actually, I think as you read them, they've got a great balance of gospel biblical truth on sanctification by grace. And so I, I think the idea is a good one. Let's take a fresh look at Thomas Boston. Here is Christ-centered, gospel-driven, spirit-filled, grace-motivated, holiness-producing preaching, um, and uh, we're, we're prone to the errors of our own time. I think the error of our own time um, is not so much legalism. I speak as a college president. Um, you know, there was an era in the, in the history of Wheaton College where that was very much the theological danger for us. I'm not saying that's not present at all. I think we all struggle with, with temptation to legalism in various ways. But we live in a culture that devalues holiness. And so promoting a fully sanctified life. That's the direction that we need to go. Thomas Boston was fighting a different era, error. He was really fighting the, the, the legalists, the neonomians, as they were, uh, have come to be called um, in, in historical theological terms. But I think he has a biblical balance, which actually provides a helpful corrective in our own time in a different way than it was a helpful corrective in his time. But when you have the biblical balance, it, it tends to correct whatever error you have. Let me just mention a few things very quickly about the life of Thomas Boston. I'm going to go try to go pretty quickly um, here uh, generally. I mentioned um, late 17th century, early 18th century. He was born in 1676, died in 1732, kind of on the eve of the Great Awakening in, in, uh, in Britain and in the United States. Um, his, you may think that you're in an out-of-the-way place in a small church, uh, when he went to his first parish at uh, the tender age of 23 uh, in Simprin, which is a very rural community in Scotland, only seven people came to his first church service. So that's a very small effort. That's a small church plant. 
seven years after that, he went to another community, the, the town of Ettrick. That also, even to this day, is an extremely remote place. And there were times when he felt, as he put it, staked down to the place where God has put him. He, God had put him. There were times when he, you know, kind of imagined what it would be like to be preaching at some great church in Edinburgh or Glasgow or something like that. But God had put him in this place. And the fruit of his faithful week-in, week-out labors uh, continues to be a blessing to the church today. I, I just uh, admire his faithfulness in ministry, particularly because of the physical hardships he suffered. It was his practice to visit every home in his parish for catechetical instruction twice a year. Uh, he ranged on horseback over a 100-square-mile area uh, to do that uh, visitation. Uh, he was often in poor health, and yet um, in some 30-plus years of pastoral ministry did not miss a single Sunday in the pulpit, uh, including his um, last couple of sermons, which were preached actually from his deathbed, and people gathered uh, kind of at the window of the manse to hear his, uh, to hear his final messages. Um, very sadly, uh, Boston and his wife lost six of their ten children. Um, he suffered with, with depression. His wife also seems to have suffered with depression, possibly with, with some issues of mental illness. It's a little kind of matching up how they talked about these things then and how we talk about them today. You have to read between the lines a little bit. But it was a very difficult um, ministry that he had. And I think all the more remarkable then that his preaching ministry is so filled with the joy of the gospel, with the hope of everlasting life, with... Uh, just the refreshment uh, of the gospel, something that he held on to uh, very deeply. As Rick Phillips mentioned, uh, Boston's most famous book is Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Uh, I was amazed to discover that that book went through a hundred printings, a hundred editions in Scotland, England, and the United States in the 18th century. Uh, you're doing pretty well publishing. If, you're, if you have a book that goes through 100 editions, it was one of the most widely published books, actually the most widely published Scottish book of the 18th century. And at his first um, church, Boston said, I, I really um, I want to I be a good pastor. I want my people to really understand the misery of their sinful condition outside of Christ. And I really want them to understand the grace that God has for them in the gospel. I want them to understand these two great themes. And then as he developed that in his second parish in Ettrick, um, it was developed into this fourfold structure of creation, how God made things in the beginning, the fall and the effects of sin, the grace that God has for us in the gospel, and then what is our eternal hope and, and, and what does eternity hold? Um, actually, not just preaching on heaven, but also preaching on hell and on judgment. Um, and he took a, a rural parish. Most of the people in his parish would have been illiterate and gave them this simple, big structure that they could see themselves. Okay, what, how did, what did God make me for? Have I really come into a state of grace in Jesus Christ, or am I still in this lost and fallen condition? What, what is my eternal hope? Um, it, it was a simple structure that people could grab hold of. And if you had gone to Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield or John Wesley, all of whom held Thomas Boston in very high regard, and you had asked them, you, you had gone to them and said, okay, I've, become a, I've given my life to Christ 
what should I be doing? What should I be reading? One of the first books they would have wanted to put into your hands uh, would have been Thomas Boston's Human Nature in Its Fourfold State. Then uh, just one other thing about his um, sort of biography or historical context that I think is, is relevant is that, um, well, actually, I want to mention two other things. As he looked at the society around him and the kinds of sins that were common in rural Scotland, he said, wow, this is a lot like Corinth. Now, I think many of us would be tempted to say our culture is a lot like, more like, more like Corinth than probably rural Scotland was in the, in the end of the 17th or early 18th century. But um, licentiousness, profanity, you know, kind of the uh, dissension in the church, kind of the big issues that were present in Corinth. And those are all holiness issues. So as Thomas Boston situated himself as a minister in the culture he was in, it was a very strong theme in his preaching and in his life. I really need to emphasize holiness uh, for people. In fact, I I think I may have a quotation here. Um, Just how he thought, here's how he thought about his own ministry. Uh, And this is from his sermon, and this is one of those great sort of older Puritan Presbyterian titles, a heart exercised unto godliness necessary to make a good minister. Uh, That's a sermon title for you. I don't know how it's going to look on the bulletin, but there it is. Um, if the fear of the Lord be not on our spirits to counterbalance the fear of men, we cannot avoid being ensnared in unfaithfulness. He's talking about unfaithfulness in gospel ministry. But a heart exercised to godliness will lead us on to act as in the sight of God, whether in public or in private, so that no souls may perish through our default. Uh, that's somebody very committed to holiness in his own personal life um, and, and ministry. And then the, this is the last thing I want to say about Boston biographically. I love this. This is, and I think, such an appropriate word for general assembly. Um, this Boston had recently died. Some of his colleagues, just they admired him so much, they wanted to put down in writing what he was like as a man and as a minister. And this was um, their description They talked about his joint concern for purity and peace in the church. No man more zealous for the former, that is the purity of the church, and at the same time, more studious of the latter, that is the peace of the church. Having observed and felt so much of the mischief of division and separation. Boston was exceedingly cautious and scrupulous of anything new or unprecedented until he was thoroughly satisfied of its necessity and of its biblical ground. It was his settled mind that solidly and strongly to establish the truth was in many cases the best, the shortest, and most effectual way to confute error without irritating and inflaming the passions of men to their own and to the truth's prejudice. And on all of these accounts, he was much respected and regarded by not only his brethren that differed from him, but generally by all sorts of men. I just think that's a great thing to aspire to, the purity of the church, the peace of the church, and, uh, and in such a way that the truth is commended to others, whether they agree with you or not. 
Uh, that, that's a good description, I think, of the ministry of Thomas Boston. Now, specifically with regard to sanctification, what I want to do is talk a little bit about uh, the approach that Boston takes to sanctification in his book, Human Nature in Its Fourfold State, and I very much hope uh, also in his uh, teaching on the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism. Uh, as Boston turns from the state of nature, our fallen condition, to the state of grace in Jesus Christ, he develops the doctrine of regeneration. And then, I think very significantly, he uses the doctrine of union with Christ as his main way of pulling together the different aspects of salvation, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, all of these elements of, of um, of salvation, pulling them together in uh, in the doctrine of union with Christ, and he particularly takes as his uh, launching off point John chapter fifteen. Uh, Jesus Christ is the true vine; believers as branches in the vine, which receive all of the blessings and benefits of salvation because of their union uh, with Jesus Christ. I think one of the reasons he gravitates toward that passage. Um, is because his rural congregation understood best agricultural metaphor. Um, so he, does all, he develops that metaphor of this living thing in all kinds of ways that I think would have been readily uh, accessible uh, to his, his parishioners. And he develops in talking about um, our mystical union with Jesus Christ as one of these multiple benefits of salvation, the benefit of sanctification. Being united to Christ, we partake of his spirit, which is the spirit of holiness. And Boston talks about the fullness of holiness that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, it's not like a vessel that you pour into another vessel and now what was full there is now full in you. It's not like that. It's, it is like the fullness of a fountain something that is continually flowing and overflowing into your life, always sending forth its waters and yet always full. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit for sanctification in uh, the believer's life. And um, Boston explains that this sanctifying Holy Spirit is both a spirit of mortification and a spirit of vivification. Those of you familiar with sort of Reformed teaching on sanctification will be very familiar with the, these two dimensions of sanctification. There is the dying of sin in the life of the believer, and there is the coming to life of, of holiness. Uh, mortification is this, um, uh, is, this, is this putting to death. And Boston says, it is through the Spirit that we mortify the deeds of the body. He's just quoting directly from uh, Romans chapter 8. And he explains that, look, sin in the life of the believer is, it's not yet dead. It's only mostly dead. Uh, it's dying, but we can't take it down from the cross yet. It still has to be on the cross because we're still struggling with the vestiges of sin. Uh, here's the analogy he gives. As when a tree has got such a stroke as reaches the heart of it, and the leaves and the branches begin to fade and decay, so where the sanctifying spirit comes and breaks the power of sin, there is a gradual ceasing from it and dying to it. You can imagine, I've actually got a couple trees like this in my neighborhood, you, you can tell they're not going to make it. Uh, 
Uh, they've got some leaves at the bottom part of the tree, but there are a lot of dead branches at the top. You know, it doesn't look so good this year. It's going to look even worse the next year. That's, that's what sin in the life of the believer is supposed to look like. It's dying away uh, over the course of the believer's life. And the spirit is also not just a spirit of putting sin to death, but also a spirit of coming alive to righteousness. And the great gospel event that connects to that is not the cross and putting to death, it's the resurrection and coming to life. At Christ's resurrection, I'm I'm now quoting from Boston, when his soul was reunited with his body, every member of that blessed body was enabled again to perform the actions of life. Every, Every part of the bo- physical body of Jesus Christ was animated by the resurrection power of the Spirit. So also the soul, being influenced by the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, is enabled more and more to perform all the actions of spiritual life. Now I'm going to read a little bit more of Boston's quote here, but what I want to emphasize is he's developing a view of sanctification that is rooted in the cross and in the empty tomb. It is rooted directly in the gospel. It's very strong on the power of the Holy Spirit as the enabling power of sanctification in the believer's life. And it is also very strong on the active response of the believer. Uh, That's why I I gave this uh, seminar, I think the title of Not by Faith Alone. Uh, That's our doctrine of justification. It's justification by faith alone. It's all of the active work of Jesus Christ. But when it comes to sanctification... Yes, it's the influence and power of the Holy Spirit rooted in the gospel work of Jesus Christ in the cross and in the empty tomb. But there is this active dimension of the believers living out a, a life of holiness that is part and parcel of sanctification. And so Boston says, the soul being influenced by the sanctifying spirit of Christ is enabled more and more to perform all the actions of spiritual life. And then Boston goes on to talk about the role of the law in the Christian life. Now, you, as a believer in Christ, you, ha- you have the law written on your heart. And, and because of this, believers are enabled to transcribe that law in their life. Uh, you're writing out, as it were, the law of Christ in the way you live out uh, the Christian life. And then he goes on to say, I mean, even this is under the grace of God. You cannot write one line of that law without blots. And yet God, for Christ's sake, accepts of the performance in point of sanctification, they being disciples to his own son and led by his own spirit. Now, some of the language here is a little archaic. You have to think about it a little bit. But he, he's saying, look, you, uh, you are now a believer in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you are writing out in your own life the law of God. It's being transcribed in your life, of course not perfectly, Of course, they're going to be, um, you know, I suppose in those days they wrote mainly with fountain pens. They're going to be blots on your page. But these things also are accepted in Christ um, because of of his grace. Um, There is the the righteousness of Christ uh, is covering the defects in our own working out of our sanctification. Um, I think partly what I want to emphasize, I'm just kind of the main thing I want to emphasize is you can have a strong doctrine of sanctification and a strong commitment to personal holiness that uh, calls for an active response in the life of the believer, pursuing holiness, pursuing good works that is strongly rooted in the grace of the gospel. 
And these things go together in biblical uh, reform teaching on sanctification. And Thomas Boston, I think, is a great example um, of that kind of teaching. Here is the way that Boston defines sanctification in his book, Human Nature and Its Fourfold State. True sanctification is the result of the soul's union with the holy Jesus. I'm going to read this. It'll be a little, it's a little hard to follow if you're just hearing it. I'm going to go back in and talk about it a little bit. True sanctification is the result of the soul's union with the holy Jesus, the first and immediate receptacle of the sanctifying spirit, out of whose fullness his members do, by virtue of their union with him, receive sanctifying influences. So how, where does true sanctification come from? Well, it comes from your union with Christ. You are united to Jesus Christ. I love the way, even the way he just says, the holy Jesus. Even in that phrase, you get a sense of a minister wrestling, working through in his own life, the doctrine of sanctification. And what rises before him is the holiness of his Savior, whom he addresses in personal terms, the holy Jesus. And then he makes this comment. The first and immediate receptacle of the sanctifying spirit. What he's saying is, Jesus himself is the first recipient of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity receiving the fullness of the third person of the Trinity in his earthly ministry. He's, in effect, Jesus is the receptacle of the Holy Spirit. And now it's out of his fullness, out of the fullness of Jesus Christ, because we're united to him, that same Holy Spirit now Uh, flows into and overflows into uh, our lives. That's how this sanctifying influence um, comes into our lives. And he goes on to say, now, Boston goes on to say, now this is very different from trying to be holy simply by your own efforts, simply by moral exertion or by obedience to a code or simply out of a sense of duty. Um, And he makes an interesting analogy if that's all the holiness you have a kind of what i would think of as a kind of benjamin franklin holiness where you're trying to pursue a life of virtue and trying to do it out of your own um, inherent qualities without any supernatural grace boston says that's like a common boatman who is serving himself with his own oars whereas the ship bound for emmanuel's land sails by the blowings of the divine spirit Uh, Now, that's not to say you just lie down on the deck of the boat and are blown somewhere. I mean, there's a, you're on the crew of this ship, I suppose. You have to catch the the wind and the sails. There's an active dimension of sanctification, but the power of it comes from the Holy Spirit. That's that's the point of the analogy or contrast um, that Boston gives. He goes on to say, and this is an interesting pastoral comment, Now we can see how it comes to pass that many fall away from their seeming sanctification. Um, I mean, he had that experience in pastoral ministry. If you're an elder, ruling elder, or teaching elder in the church, you've had that. Somebody you thought was making progress or even thought was committed to the Lord, and then you have strong reason to wonder if they're saved at all. Whatever seemed to be progress and holiness, it was all out of their own strength, and it couldn't last. It couldn't persevere. Um, whereas it's very different if you're united to the true vine, Jesus Christ, because even if you go through times of difficulty or weakness, there is a sustaining influence which will bring things uh, back to life. Meanwhile, some 
fall away from their seeming sanctification, Boston says, and never recover. Meanwhile, others recover from their decays because of their union with the life-giving stock by the quickening spirit. Um, Here's another dimension of Boston's teaching on sanctification in uh, human nature in in its fourfold state, this great uh, work of Christian theology and devotion. Uh, Boston wants to explain two different ways in which we grow in Christ. Christ is the true vine, we're the branches, we're growing. There's an inward growing into Christ, uniting more closely with him, and there is an outward growing in good works in life and in conversation. Um, and I, as I understand it, and somebody here perhaps could correct me, kind of when the Puritans talked about conversation, it, it does refer to, to verbal communication and to speech, but it's the whole life beyond that. There's, a, there's two dimensions of it. Um, conversation is kind of the life that you live uh, before God. It has both of those um, dimensions. And in this outward growth in good works, there is an active uh, dimension. There's a pursuit of holiness. There is a commitment to doing good works. And hopefully you're getting a sense here. There's, there's a balance here, a very strong emphasis on the gospel, on God's grace, on the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, but there's also a strong emphasis on doing good works, pursuing the life of holiness. Both of those things belong together. A verse that's been helpful to me, I, I don't I don't see it here in, in Boston's fourfold state is Colossians 1.29. I think of it in the context of ministry, which is part of Paul's context there. For this reason I toil, striving with all of his energy, which he works so powerfully in me. Uh, you couldn't have a stronger emphasis on how God is just carrying you along with his power and ministry. It, it's all his grace. And, but then on the other hand, you're working as hard as you, you are striving, you are toiling, but you're doing it with his energy. Uh, I don't know if that's a paradox exactly. I, I suppose it's a kind of paradox, but it's, it's a gospel paradox that is descriptive of the life of sanctification and also the life of, of ministry. Uh, as Boston develops this idea of the outward growth of sanctification in holiness, he says, this is why we are united to Christ. For that very end, our souls united to Christ, that they may bring forth fruit unto God. All who are united to Christ bring forth the fruit of gospel obedience and true holiness. Faith is always followed with good works. I'm just quoting here from Boston's fourfold state. And then he, then he gives a, an analogy. Uh, one of the, one of the, it's somewhat rare for him, actually. It's not an agricultural analogy. Now that, that he has put on Christ, Boston says of the believer, he personates him, so to speak, as a beggar in borrowed robes represents a king on the stage walking as he also walked. Uh, that's an interesting analogy. You're, you're this poor beggar. You're just playing the part of a king, but that's actually your calling as a believer, and you are living out this active life of holiness, the life that you have seen in Jesus himself. Um, Boston comes to, to the end of his teaching on, on sanctification in the fourfold state, and he asks a question. If you ask me, how can your nourishment, growth, and fruitfulness be forwarded? 
that's a great question. It's a question we should be asked. How can I become more fruitful in the Christian life? How can this work be carried forward? He gives a number of answers to that question. He says, well, first of all, it's a matter of faith, of truly being united to Jesus Christ by faith, because he's the source of this sanctifying influence. But that's not the only, it's not just believing in Jesus for sanctification. That would be faith alone. But sanctification also calls the pursuit of a life of holiness. It calls for that. And so Boston gives some other instructions. He says, endeavor to cut off the suckers as gardeners do that their trees may thrive. What are these quote unquote suckers? They are uh, unmortified lusts. Therefore, mortify your members that are upon the earth. There are things that you need to cut off of your life. This idea of a sucker I, I don't know that much. Of, I, people in my family have a brown thumb. We don't know that much about growing things. But I, I do know that when you see a tree, and it's not, it, it has a lot of, even the trunk is starting to have bran- little branches and leaves growing out of it. That's, that's not what you want to see. That, that's not thriving. You want to see the leaves up at the top of the tree. And you need to cut off those lower things so that the, the full tree can grow. That's the analogy um, that he's given giving. Boston also says this, still on the topic of how can you carry forward uh, sanctification in your life? Improve the ordinances of God. Um, By ordinances, he's talking about the word of God, prayer. He's talking about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and baptism. He's talking about making the gospel use of these things. That's what he means by improve. You're, You're familiar probably with the language of improving our baptism uh, is that larger catechism that talks about improving our baptism? Um, these are the means appointed of God to cause his people to grow as willows by the watercourses. Wow, what a great phrase. Willows by the, you just imagine this big weeping willow. It's down by a stream of water. Uh, that's what prayer, the word of God, the sacraments, they have been given for this purpose. Come to these wells of salvation, not to look at them only, but to draw water out of them. Uh, that's, an, that's an interesting way of talking about it. It's not saying, here, just do these things and you'll be sanctified. No, it's, it's in this place, these things that God has given you, that you will draw this nourishing water uh, from the Lord himself and from the Holy Spirit. He goes on to talk about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as in a special manner appointed to these ends. Some of you may know that the Scottish practice was to have an annual communion, uh, not a regular communion that has some, I suppose, some certainly has some disadvantages from my perspective. But one of the advantages was this was kind of the high point of the Christian year, uh, receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And you look at some of the sacramental sermons that Boston preached. I mean, just such a sense of God's grace that comes through the, the sacrament. I, I mentioned this is parenthetical, but I mentioned his first sermon in his first church. There were only seven people there. When Boston celebrated his last communion, and this would have been a sort of week-long event, people from other churches would have been there, Uh, there were 777 people that received communion. Um, And just a sense of gratitude as Boston saw these people gathering to receive uh, this communion um, uh, in Christ. These are um, some of the, the emphases in Boston's human nature in its fourfold state. Um, re- regarding sanctification. Let me make this last comment, and then we try to get on to a couple of other things in one of Boston's other um, writings. As Boston talks about the benefits of salvation and of gospel holiness that come to us out of union with Christ, 
He also talks about this benefit, the acceptance of the fruits of our holiness before the Lord. Yes, they're imperfect. Even our best efforts at holiness are imperfect. But they are accepted because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it occurs to me to say that unless you have an active commitment to pursuing a life of holiness, you never really experience this benefit of the gospel in your life. Uh, And this benefit is recognizing how far short you come and you realize that better when you're pursuing a life of holiness than if you're casual about it or assume that somehow the life of holiness just happens automatically, that it doesn't require using the ordinances of God or mortifying your lusts. But in that act of pursuit of holiness, um, it doesn't have to be a legalistic thing at all because even as you realize how far short you come, you at the same time realize I am accepted in Christ even with all of the uh, shortcomings of my Uh, sanctification. Oh, how defective are the saints' duties in the eye of the law. The believer himself sees many faults in his best performances, Boston says, yet the Lord graciously receives them. There's no grace planted in the heart, but there is not a weed of corruption hard by its side. Hence, there are defects in the exercise of every grace, in the performance of every duties. There is still a mixture of darkness in our clearest light, yet this does not mar their acceptance. I found it um, very helpful uh, in ministry just to meditate even on on what the larger catechism says about the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, um, that uh, it's not just our persons, the larger catechism says, but also our works that are accepted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even my ministry is accepted. In the priestly, because of the priestly um, ministry of Jesus Christ. And you can be pressing hard and actively for a life of gospel holiness in a non-legalistic way, in a way that is rooted and grounded in the gospel, because you, you see how far short you come, and yet that too is accepted uh, in the ministry of, of Jesus Christ. There's an acceptance that, that Boston is, is pressing us to seek. Now, let me, uh, I've got, I think, 15 minutes left. I'm very committed to ending right on time. I'll stop even if I'm mid-sentence, probably. Um, and by the way, there, there won't really be time for questions, but I, I can linger here if people want to people talk about Thomas Boston. I'll talk about Thomas Boston or about sanctification. Uh, what I want to commend in my last 15 minutes here is Boston's um, sermon, really, or chapter called Of Sanctification. And what this is from, he this is very... Uh, worthwhile reading, by the way. Thomas Boston has two whole volumes on the Shorter Catechism. And it's basically the Shorter Catechism expounded from Scripture. And this is his section on sanctification. He's developing 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, but ye are sanctified by the Spirit of our God. And he is wanting to talk here about sanctification Um, whereby, this is another kind of definition of sanctification in Boston's writing, sin itself is gradually carried out of the heart of life and grace planted therein and actuated and advanced. Sanctification is the actuation of the gospel in a life of, of holiness. And there are, I think, nine points Boston makes about sanctification in this message, um, and I'll try to make most of them and try to make most of them pretty briefly. The first point has to do with the kinds of sanctification, 
And Boston distinguishes between what he calls initial sanctification and progressive sanctification. Initial sanctification basically happens with your regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, um, it, and you, you are a new person, you are a new soul. This is your initial sanctification. There's a, a sense in which the holiness of God has come into your life with the Holy Spirit coming at regeneration. But there is also progressive sanctification, whereby that change, Boston says, is carried on more and more, the Spirit holding hand to the begun work. Um, You can imagine, perhaps, it's a little obscure kind of how he developed, he doesn't develop the image, but you can imagine perhaps a parent holding the hand of a child. Um, The Holy Spirit is coming to your life. You, in a definitive way, in in an initial way, you are sanctified, you are made holy, you are washed in the, in the Corinthian sense of the word. But there's also this ongoing work of sanctification. And in this work, the Spirit is holding your hand. In the initial work, the Spirit comes into your life. But in this other, this ongoing work, the Spirit is holding your hand. You are walking with the Spirit. There is an active dimension to the life of holiness and to the life of sanctification. Um, the Spirit is not simply carrying you through the work of sanctification. The Spirit is holding your hand. It's a different kind of image which uh, implies a more active dimension, not faith only, but also the proper exercise of works in the Christian life. Boston says, look, initial sanctification, progressive sanctification, I mean, they're the same in substance because they are work, the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, but they have a different place in the Christian life, and Boston emphasizes progressive sanctification is that sanctification that follows justification. It's ongoing in the Christian life. Uh, So that's on the kinds of sanctification. Boston, in the second place, talks about the author of sanctification. Uh, It's not the sinner himself. Uh, He says, we can well defile ourselves with all impurity, but cannot cleanse ourselves. Um, But... That's negatively. It's the author of sanctification is not the sinner himself. Positively, it's the work of God. And it is the work of a whole trinity to sanctify a soul, he says, as lightly as many think of being holy. What a great comment that is. You know, people don't really people discount holiness. They don't think of it as, as really a very significant thing. It takes the whole trinity to make a person holy. That's that's the point that Boston is making. He talks about uh, sanctified by God the Father, that's in Jude. He talks about that Christ may sanctify us from Ephesians 5. He talks about the sanctification of the Spirit in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's the whole trinity that's involved in sanctification, but particularly, he says at the end, the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he builds on his earlier distinction between initial and progressive sanctification. And he says in initial sanctification, the Spirit acts alone, And the poor sinner is wholly passive and can do nothing that way. I mean, that's when the Spirit comes into your life at regeneration. That's entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. You're you're dead in sin. But in progressive sanctification, the sinner does act towards his own sanctification, yet he acts not but as he is acted by the Holy Spirit. So he's wanting to connect the active life of, of holiness He never wants to sever that from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, but he does want to describe it as something that the believer is active in. In progressive sanctification, though the sinner does act toward his own sanctification, yet he acts not, 
but as he is acted on by the Holy Spirit. I just want to say again, my, the main thing I want you to see in these different way, in different ways in Thomas Boston is a strong emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the gospel in, in the life of sanctification without in any way diminishing the believer's commitment to, un, to the pursuit uh, of holiness. Those things uh, go together. Uh, in the third place, Boston talks about the cause, the moving cause of sanctification. What do you think he says is the moving cause? He's not talking about the author now, the person who is involved in sanctification. He's talking about the cause in a, in a deeper theological sense. The only cause of sanctification is free grace, not any personal worth in the creature uh, Boston is very much drawing on what he read there in The Marrow of Modern Divinity because that book has a very strong emphasis on sanctification uh, by free grace. The Holy Spirit sanctifies the unholy sinner freely. I think grasping this principle answers, I think, the fear that unless sanctification is by faith alone. Somehow it doesn't have the grace of God working powerfully in it. No, you, sanctification has a proper place for works and for fruitfulness in the Christian life, which is strongly connected to the grace of God. And, and Boston brings those things together. The moving cause of sanctification in the believer's life is the free grace of God. Uh, fourthly, he shows wherein sanctification consists wherein sanctification consists, or what the Spirit does to a sinner when he sanctifies him. And um, here, I, I won't go into this in detail because I've already mentioned it from the fourfold state. He talks about the Spirit's work in the mortification of sin and in the vivification of, of holiness in the life of the believer. Dying to sin, living under righteousness, those uh, two dimensions of, of sanctification. This is how the Holy Spirit work sanctification into the life of the believer. Uh, but I do want to quote this sentence from Thomas Boston. He's talking about the believer coming to life by the Holy Spirit. And he says, now the business of the believer's life is to serve the Lord and work out his own salvation. It's a very strong statement of now what the Holy Spirit has put into you and how you live it out and work it out uh, in the life of holiness. The business of his life is to serve the Lord and to work out his salvation. Um, fifthly, the subject of sanctification, the subject of sanctification is the elect. And here, to me, there's just something very poignant about this. Um, in one sense, he's just making an obvious theological point, or at least to Calvinists, an ob obvious theological point. It is the elect who are sanctified, all of the elect, only the elect. But as soon as he gets into that topic of election, he brings in elect infants dying in infancy, being naturally corrupted, must needs be sanctified too by the Holy Spirit. And he surely is thinking of his own life experience having lost six of his children in infancy. And by the way, I think one of the most beautiful passages in all of Christian autobiography is uh, Boston's description of the death of his second son, Ebenezer. Thus far hath the Lord helped us. He named a child Ebenezer. They were expecting another child. He, re he wrestled through a great uh, crisis of soul because he had the thought of naming another son Ebenezer. But then he, he just felt, uh, that child dies too. I mean, I just, I mean, how, I, don't, I don't know if I could go on if I name a second child Ebenezer and that child doesn't make it. He named the child Ebenezer. 
uh, he went out into the, the little barn, probably more like a shed behind the manse, when the child was born, because the child was born sickly. He covenanted before God, and he called on the stones of this barn as his covenant witnesses for the covenant he was making on, on behalf of his child. Uh, the child died. And Boston goes on to describe the burial and how, and just his, just his sense of his own union with Christ, the blessing of God on this child, and not wanting um, sort of some earthly thing to make up for his loss, but only to hold on to Jesus. Um, I think that's the context that Boston brings to his discussion of sanctification here. He wants to claim the holiness of sanctification in principle uh, on behalf of even uh, children dying at the very, very earliest uh, days of life. There's a, it just, there's, it's not just theology that's at work. It's something that's worked out through his, own, uh, through his own suffering. These are the subjects of sanctification. Uh, sixthly, the fruit of sanctification is habitual holiness, that is, an habitual aversion of the soul to evil, an inclination to good, and actual holiness in all manner of life and conversation, in good works, which have God's word for their rule, his glory for their end, and are done in faith. Um, th- this is the fruit of sanctification, the fruit of the, the Spirit's work in sanctification. It's a life of holiness. Now, here, Boston doesn't develop that at great length, and I think partly because that's not the main error that he's combating. He, he's not preaching to people that don't think you need to be holy. He's preaching to people that don't understand how gracious the work of the Spirit is in sanctification. That's what he strongly needs to emphasize. But he has the biblical balance, and he's saying, here's the fruit of this work. It's habitual holiness, and certainly in many other places, Boston called his people to holiness and developed in great detail what that holiness uh, would look like in all manner of life and conversation. He said, in good works, which have God's word for their rule, you're following the word of God and pursuing this life of sanctification. Uh, And then in the seventh place, how sanctification is carried on, how sanctification is carried on. He talks about this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit um, he talks about times when it's winter time and there aren't many leaves on the tree and you're not seeing a lot of the fruit and yet you're still connected to Jesus Christ and that work of the Spirit will be revived, um, ending finally in um, the perfection of that holiness at death. And then eighth, in the eighth place, what is the means of sanctification? The outward means that the Spirit makes use of in this work. What are those means? They are God's ordinances, public, private, and secret, especially the word and the sacraments. They that would be holy must use these means of sanctification whereby the spirit begins and carries on his work. Again, I mean, I've perhaps emphasized it too much. There's a strong emphasis on the spirit carrying forward the spirit's work in sanctification, but it's the believer that's making use of these means of sanctification. These things are brought together in their in their biblical uh, balance. And then here is my uh, final comment. So those are uh, when Boston um, wanted to sort of 
um, define or describe the work of sanctification. Those are some of his main theological moves. You can find that in his teaching on uh, the Shorter Catechism. That book, by the way, is called An Illustration of the Doctrines of the Christian Religion. An Illustration of the Doctrines of the Christian Religion. Um, and I want to just close with this comment. And this is from, uh, Boston actually has two sermons on sanctification in our two chapters on sanctification, I suppose you could call them, in that, in that work on the Shorter Catechism. And I just want, I don't, I'm not developing the second of those messages, but I, I just want to comment on this. Um, this is a good statement of the biblical balance between the gracious work of the Holy Spirit and the active response of the believer. Continual supplies of the Spirit are to, are to be derived from Christ for the saints' progress in holiness until they come to perfection. And faith is the great means of communication between Christ and us. Faith empties the soul of all confidence in itself for sanctification and relies upon him for it according to his word. So up to this point in Boston's description here, there's a strong emphasis on sanctification by faith. Faith in Christ working through the Holy Spirit. And what is the result of this? It puts on the saints to use the means of sanctification appointed by him, yet taking their confidence off of the means and setting it on Christ. And that's an apt uh, summary of um, how the gospel works in sanctification. For the ground of this confidence, we have God's word so that his honor and faithfulness are engaged for the supply of the spirit of sanctification in this way, being the way in which he has commanded us to look for it. Well, I, I have to say um, I found it encouraging and helpful to go back. I'm just reminded just what a great pastor and sound theologian Thomas Boston is, and hopefully some of these thoughts are helpful on sanctification. I commend to you again the Affirmations and Denials of the Gospel Reformation Network. Uh, there are also some uh, very good interviews, by the way, on the website, um, pithy and, and substantive. Uh, I thank our friends from Matt's again, and I think they have brought in, if you need vehicles for ministry, they can help you, and I think they've left some materials here. And uh, this is the end. Thank you. <laughs>